Greetings and welcome on behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute. My name is Michael Le Chevalier and I serve as Associate Director here. Today's event is part of an ongoing series that sets economics in dialogue with Catholic social thought and the broader Catholic intellectual tradition. This two-part special focus on Catholic education draws together experts, industry leaders, and practitioners to consider the integral development of students in Catholic schools. You can join for the second installment that attends to a global picture of Catholic schools on February 16th. Now this event wouldn't be possible without a number of organizers and co-sponsors. This event was organized by the Lumen Christi Institute, the Catholic Research Economist Discussion Organization, Global Catholic Education, Global Researchers Advancing Catholic Education, or GRACE, the International Federation of Catholic Universities, the National Catholic Education Association, or NCEA, and the International Office of Catholic Education. This event is co-sponsored by America Media and the Roche Center for Catholic Education. I'm grateful for these many institutions that helped ensure the su success of today's event. At the end of the presentation, there will be an opportunity for questions from the audience. I now have the pleasure of introducing today's moderator who will introduce our panel. Annie Smith, joined NCEA's team in September as the Director of Research and Data Management. Previously, she was an Associate Superintendent of Strategy, Research, and Data in the Archdiocese of Boston. Annie has a Bachelor of Arts in Mathematics from the College of the Holy Cross and a Master's of Education in po Education Policy and Management from Harvard University. Annie, would you please unmute yourself and turn on your video? Good morning. Thank you so much, Michael, for the introduction, and thank you all for joining us today. This presentation is very timely because U.S. Catholic schools face the biggest challenge yet, in part because of the pandemic. We've had the largest drop in Catholic school enrollment ever with a 6.5% decrease in students, and that's normally about 1% to 2%. We lost over 200 schools this summer, when it's usually about 100 schools each year. Those schools seem to be more in urban areas as well as more parish schools. That in mind, as we listen to the evidence that Quentin is presenting on Catholic schools and universities' ability to educate the whole person, I want you to think about what can we in the U.S. learn from other countries? How can our Catholic schools improve based on learning from the other schools? What does the relationship between parish and schools do to enrollment? Europe has horrible parish participation, but Catholic school enrollment is higher. Religious order schools in the US do well compared to parish schools, but why is that? Based on today's presentation and discussion, how should parishes and schools work together in the US to support Catholic schools? And lastly, how can higher education help Catholic schools throughout the country? With that, I would like to introduce today's presenters and panelists. We have Dr. Andrew Miller, who is an assistant professor of educational leadership at Boston College's Lynch School of Education and Human Development. He previously was a teacher at St. George Catholic School in Fort Worth, Texas, and Director of Academics at the Archdiocese of Boston Catholic Schools Office. We also have Dr. Tim Yule, who serves as the Superintendent of Montana Catholic Schools, serving 23 schools, over 3,900 students, and two dioceses. He was previously the Principal of Holy Rosary Regional School in Tacoma and Catholic High School in, in Louisiana. Lastly, we have Dr. Quentin Wooden, who is the lead economist with the World Bank's Education Global Practice and a project manager with the International Office of Catholic Education. With that, I would like to invite Andrew, Tim, and Quentin to unmute themselves and turn on their video. Thank you, Tim, Andrew, and Quentin for being with us today. Um, Quentin, I'm gonna pass it along to you to um, begin the presentation. Thank you, I hope you can hear me. Um, thank you, Annie, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here um, today. Um, I'm going to try to share my screen. Uh, hopefully, uh, this will work and start uh, with a 20 minutes uh, presentation. Uh, I do hope uh, that everybody can see uh, the screen. Um, can you see it, Annie? Yes? Yes, we can see it, Quentin. Wonderful. So thank you. Um, so we want to have uh, this whole uh, webinar uh, wrapped up in about an hour uh, because we know that many of you are very, very busy. Um, so I've been given uh, 20 minutes uh, to share some thoughts uh, and some recent research uh, on measuring the contribution of Catholic schools. 
Um, most of you are probably uh, working in the US. Uh, you may or, or may not know that uh, the network of Catholic schools and universities uh, in the world uh, is really massive. Uh, we have about uh, 62 uh, million children enrolled in pre-primary, primary and secondary education uh, globally in Catholic schools, another 6 million uh, at the post-secondary level. Uh, yet, uh, we also know that uh, these networks are often not consulted on policy um, and uh, they often also do not have sufficient access uh, to the latest knowledge. Uh, this might be less the case in the US, but uh, it is often the case uh, in low-income countries. Uh, the latest knowledge about how to um, uh, improve the quality of the education and make sure that the schools uh, fulfill their mission. So my presentation today um, is uh, as part of my volunteer work uh, with the International Office of Catholic Education. So I'm not talking in any way uh, formally on behalf of the World Bank, which is my employment. Um, and I wanted to thank uh, Lumen Christi, uh, Credo, NCA, Grace, uh, as well as uh, OIEC um, and a few other organizations for uh, the opportunity to share some thoughts with you. Um, as Michael mentioned it, we have this discussion today uh, on the US uh, and then on February 16, we'll have um, another uh, webinar on the global picture of Catholic education. So what am I going to say um, about the US? And, and actually uh, our three uh, panelists, um, Annie, uh, Tim and Andrew know much more than I do uh, about the situation of the US. But, but my idea is to share some few um, uh, piece of background for the discussion that follows. Uh, I'm going to quickly uh, go over some of the comparatively good outcomes uh, in Catholic schools uh, in the US uh, and the issue that Annie mentioned, the declining enrollment. I mean, it has declined uh, more uh, due to the COVID crisis, but this is an issue that is not new uh, in the US and enrollment has been declining for 50 years. In, in many ways, I mean, Catholic schools have an impossible task. Uh, they need to do better, uh, than other schools in order to be able to have students since parents have to pay uh, for the education and they often have fewer resources, at least in dollar terms. Um, but they have, of course, um, a very uh, particular positioning, if you will. Um, they emphasize uh, values apart from skills. And I'll talk briefly about parental priorities for what children should learn and some of the trade-offs that come out uh, from that. Then I'll spend uh, a bit of time on three new pieces of empirical research um, that do suggest that indeed, despite all of the constraints that they face, um, Catholic schools um, do relatively well in a number of dimensions, student well-being, uh, self-discipline and, and family formation later in life. And then uh, to launch a discussion uh, with uh, the panel, I'll come back to that issue of values versus faith um, and the difference uh, between the two. And finally, uh, I'll have a few words about what you might uh, be able to do um, to help. So uh, most of you are likely to be familiar with the fact that uh, Catholic K-12, um, uh, K-12 uh, is the acronym for the US for kindergarten to 12th grade, Catholic K-12 schools uh, tend to do well. And, and this is just a visualization of data, it's just basic statistics uh, from the NAEP uh, on the performance of students in mathematics and reading in fourth and eighth grade. And, and you can see in, in red or orange that the Catholic schools do uh, virtually every year um, uh, somewhat better uh, than the public schools, or rather the students in the Catholic schools do slightly better than the students in uh, public schools. I mean, I think most of you know that. And there is quite a bit of research, especially in the US, about uh, the comparative performance of Catholic versus public and sometimes other private schools. Uh, we know uh, that they tend to do uh, slightly better in terms of achievement, um, better on college entrance exams, uh, higher school graduation rates and, and, and substantially higher college entry rates, more advanced placement courses. And there's a bit of research as well um, on some of the other aspects, fewer suspensions, better attendance, less use of alcohol and, and drugs, um, more community service. Now, we shouldn't overstate this. Um, in uh, some studies, uh, once you control for enough variables, uh, those effects are not large and sometimes they vanish. Um, and the school voucher literature is also mixed, uh, which matters because a large part of the students who get vouchers uh, tend to go to Catholic schools, so it is relevant. But broadly speaking, the, there is uh, an understanding that uh, the Catholic schools do relatively well. You know about the declining enrollment. I mean, Annie 
mentioned that it has been uh, more severe this year, not surprisingly, uh, because of COVID-19, uh, but there has been a long-term decline in enrollment. And we'll go to this um, more in details in a month uh, when we'll talk about global Catholic education. But here you have two graphs, and, and I find that fascinating, actually. Um, this is the share of the total enrollment in Catholic schools globally that is accounted for by the US, uh, and then on the other slide, uh, by the Democratic Republic of Congo. And, and you can see that the US represented 12% of all the students in Catholic schools in the world in 1975, down to about 3% today, and the reverse is the case for uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. Now this has implications uh, for the church, uh, but, but we won't go that uh, here today, that will be for February. Now, why is there a decline in enrollment? I mean, there, there are different factors and, and there's again, quite a bit of research um, on this in the US. Uh, but we shouldn't underestimate the issue of the out-of-pocket cost, right? I mean, uh, the US is actually an outlier among OECD countries and, and even in the world uh, in terms of the fact that for, for a number of reasons, uh, there is no federal funding and there is very limited uh, state funding uh, for um, Catholic schools by and large, right? What you have on, on, on that uh, uh, scatter plot there is a simple way to show that this matters. I mean, you, you can use data from household surveys. Uh, this is different. This is just uh, the market share um, of Catholic schools in each of the states in the US um, that is on the vertical axis. And on the horizontal axis, you have the personal income per capita um, of each of the state. And of course, there is a positive relationship. What this means is that uh, Catholic schools tend to have a higher market share where uh, households have a higher level of personal income. And, and there is no surprise, um, uh, but this is why Catholic schools often need to do more uh, despite the fact that they have fewer resources. Uh, by the way, th there is a number there. Um, yeah, Catholic schools actually save states $24 billion um, in terms um, of the fact that the parents pay for the cost of the schooling versus what the cost might be um, uh, if uh, all these students were going to public schools. Now, there is, uh, however, some good news. And a few years ago, that was in 2017, um, uh, NCEA um, and Fadidatic, a very interesting survey, a market research survey, and what that survey shows among many other findings is that about a quarter uh, of parents have a very favorable opinion. That's the first table on the left uh, of Catholic schools. And a bit more than a quarter of the parents are very willing to consider um, Catholic schools uh, for their youngest children. Now, uh, that means that th th there are quite a few people uh, out there uh, who might uh, be willing to enroll their children in Catholic schools under the right uh, conditions. Now, what are those right conditions? And um, this is a visual from uh, NCEA about a dozen reasons uh, to choose Catholic schools. You probably cannot see it uh, in details here on your slide, um, but it's on the website. Essentially, um, NCEA makes the point, um, which uh, is logical that um, the schools need to provide academic value, but also this all aspect uh, where uh, they, they think they are different, uh, and to some extent they are, um, in terms of uh, the emphasis on values and on faith. And so uh, one of the question is, do we really have evidence um, that uh, the schools do well on the values and faith dimension um, in the same way that we do have evidence that they do well on the academic uh, dimension, which is, for example, the NAP uh, performance of the schools on, on standardized uh, tests that I mentioned earlier. Now, um, before going into the evidence that the schools indeed uh, tend to do relatively well, um, it's important to say that the parents care about this. Uh, and, and a very interesting question in the, the NCA FADICA survey was what should your children learn in school? And, and there is an amazing difference um, between all parents, that's the first column on that slide, and then the parents who have their child enrolled in a Catholic school. What you see for all parents is that uh, the skills, critical thinking, job market, college, communication skills, measuring progress academically, 
for all parents, all of the dimensions of what children could learn in school in terms of skills are considered much more important than the values. By contrast, for the parents who have their youngest child enrolled in the Catholic schools, it's about even. And, and you can see that uh, the emphasis put on values, most of them, not all of them, is actually quite a bit higher. So there is a demand, uh, clearly, from parents sending their children for faith, but also for values much more um, broadly. Now, then the question is, uh, how well are the Catholic schools doing? I'm going to mention three papers. Um, one that I'm doing with a colleague, Shaka uh, Mali, and then two others uh, for a special issue of the Journal of Catholic Education that is forthcoming. So the work that I've been doing was using the CSS survey um, in the US, uh, which is about violence and crime in, in schools. And uh, you have actually a lot of information uh, about various dimensions of well-being of the children and, and behaviors, right? We cannot compare Catholic with these other schools, but we can compare religious versus other schools. We can compare religious schools with public schools and religious schools with private schools. Now, Catholic schools account for about half of all um, uh, private schools, I think, uh, uh, in the US. Um, so they account for a larger share um, of religious schools. Uh, so when we talk about religious schools in the US, we talk in large part about um, Catholic schools. So these are some very basic stats, right? The first block on the left uh, shows that there is less violence in Catholic schools than in public schools. Um, uh, I won't go through all the numbers, but there is less bullying and there is less hate speech. Um, there is a lower likelihood that the children or the students will bring a weapon in the school. There are less gags. Um, the second panel uh, on the top right is about whether the children are distracted in schools. And uh, you have actually uh, in the classroom a much lower level of distraction as declared uh, by the students themselves in religious schools than in uh, public schools. Um, the bottom panel is probably the more important one. Um, we have different measures and, and you can do this in different ways about the lack of trust in the schools, the perception that the teachers may not care, uh, the fact that the children may not have a friend in school, uh, many other variables like, do they know how to get drugs in schools? And in all of those dimensions, just basic statistics, um, the religious schools tend to do better than the uh, public schools. Now, uh, we did that with the 2015 data, the 2017 data is available, we're going to redo it, uh, but it's not likely to change. What's important is that this remains also when we do regression analysis, right? We try to control for a number of observable characteristics um, of the uh, children uh, and their households, and that include uh, detailed data on the income levels, for example. Um, and um, we didn't do it yet for uh, the violence, but for the other elements, uh, what you have there um, on the slide are the marginal effects. So, so for example, um, <clears throat> the perception that the, the teachers do not care, the school doesn't care, uh, is uh, three percentage points um, lower after controlling for uh, a number of variables in religious versus public schools. On knowing how to get drugs uh, in schools, it's 25 percentage points lower, right? So broadly speaking, uh, there's a lot that can be done, by the way, with that survey. Uh, we see a, a systematic difference between religious and public schools. Now, this is regression analysis. It's an associative study. It's correlation. It's, it's not causality. So we have to be careful not to overstate the findings. Uh, but this tends to uh, reaffirm uh, some of what is emerging in the literature about uh, the performance on those other non-academic dimensions of Catholic schools. Now, very briefly, um, uh, because I have only, I think, five, six minutes left, um, in the special issue of the Journal of Catholic Education uh, that, that we're preparing, uh, there are a number of papers, and, and two of them um, look at the performance um, of Catholic schools in, in two different areas. Um, one uh, looks at whether um, the children, uh, or the students rather, have higher levels of self-discipline. Um, th that means fewer externalizing behaviors, that's, that's a terminology used by the authors, um, uh, meaning less uh, bursts of anger, for example, and, and other signs uh, in, in the schools, and more self-control. And yes, after controlling again in different ways, I mean, regressions, propensity score matching, and so on, after controlling for observable characteristics, uh, the students tend to do well. Uh, and then 
the other paper um, is also very interesting because it tries to look at whether where you went to school as a child affects uh, family formation patterns, marriage rates, divorce rates, um, outside uh, of wedlock, uh, childbirth. Uh, and again, those authors uh, do find effects. I mean, they actually find larger effects for those who go to um, Protestant schools, which tend to be evangelical schools, than for Catholic schools, but you do find effects for Catholic schools. Now, none of those measures, um, whether the work that, that uh, I'm doing with the CSS or whether those two papers um, is, is, is fully definitive, we need to do more research. Um, the concept of values is much broader than what we can look at in any single papers, uh, but this tends to suggest that there is a positive contribution and, and there's a whole broader literature. Now, um, what does that mean in practice? Um, and here, um, I, I would like to emphasize uh, one of the dilemma uh, and probably our, our panel members who, who, who know well, uh, who work in Catholic schools themselves, um, whether it's at the university uh, or NCA level or the school level, um, one kind of uh, dilemma. And this is about, again, this emphasis on skills versus values versus faith. Um, and um, what you can see in this slide um, is that uh, there's a bit of a difference uh, between emphasizing faith and emphasizing values, especially um, if you consider uh, the group of parents who, as I mentioned earlier, were very willing to consider Catholic schools for their children, but did not enroll their children in Catholic schools, right? So these are the next target, if you will, to stem the long-term decline in enrollment. Um, and what you see here um, is that uh, deepening the faith in the school is not necessarily the top priority for those parents, uh, but um, the values are considered uh, very important. And so uh, I cannot go too much uh, on this right here. Um, and the panelists will have more um, to think about this. Uh, we don't want to say that there's a contradiction between faith and values, absolutely not. Um, but in terms of the messaging and in terms of the practice in the schools, there is a bit of a trade-off here, uh, because if too much emphasis is put on faith strictly, and especially Catholic faith, uh, in a context of pluralism and diversity, uh, this might actually be uh, detrimental, for example, to the to the value of embracing diversity. So it's, there's a whole complicated uh, issue here uh, that we can discuss more afterwards. Now, what about higher education? So I didn't have the time today, uh, and I have two minutes left um, to uh, talk about that. I just want to mention that uh, the U.S. sector um, remains much stronger um, at the uh, higher education level for Catholic institutions than at the um, undergrad level. And you, you might be interesting to know that uh, I mentioned earlier that Catholic schools represent nowadays 3% of the total enrollment in Catholic schools, or Catholic schools in the US, represent 3% of the total enrollment in Catholic schools globally. Catholic universities represent almost one fourth of total enrollment in Catholic universities globally. And that is not changing any fast, anytime fast. Uh, there, there are a number of studies uh, that suggest a comparative advantage, uh, but uh, in the same way as we have it uh, during part to COVID for the schools, there is today a lot of pressure on universities as well. So what next? Um, uh, we will write these findings. Um, we need to understand better the why um, of uh, the results, right? Why uh, are those patterns, those differences, which are favorable to Catholic schools observed, um, and then I just want to spend one or two last minutes that I have about how you might be able um, to help. And um, my main point here, and this is one of the reasons why we organized these um, webinars, is that we need more research, but we also need to have better knowledge sharing. And uh, there is a leading role, for example, in the US for the National Association, that would be NCAA, uh, for uh, K-12 um, schools, and it would be ACCU, uh, the Association of Catholic College and Universities uh, for universities, right? You have a number of groups um, that are uh, trying to help with analytical work uh, and often going beyond. I, I just want to mention CHESCS, uh, the Catholic Higher Education Supporting Catholic Schools, CREDO, which Michael mentioned at the beginning, which is the Catholic Research Economist Discussion Organization, GRACE, uh, which is a new, um, actually global, 
collaborative between four universities, um, Boston College, one in Australia, one in the UK, one in uh, Ireland, and uh, the International Office of Catholic Education. But we need to do more. And I wanted just to mention to you that we created uh, just a month ago or two uh, for Thanksgiving, it was launched, a new website, the globalcatholiceducation.org uh, website. Uh, we will have weekly blogs, very short reads in three languages to provide links on topics. So it's not time consuming to look at it. Various publications, um, including the next global Catholic education report that is coming out in a month or so. Uh, guidance on good topics, and we need your help for that. And then a number of events and webinars uh, including uh, the one today and, and the one in one month on uh, global Catholic schools. So uh, we need your help. This is a complete volunteer effort, that website. And if you want to help, please um, go to the website and, and you can contact us through the website. Um, I think that uh, I have used exactly 20 minutes or maybe 21. I'm going to stop here and stop sharing. And I hope this provides some backgrounds uh, for the panelists uh, who know much more than I do about Catholic education in the US. Thank you. Thank you, Quentin, so much for that. That I would like to invite um, Andrew, if he could um, unmute himself and turn on his video to share with um, his response. Thank you, Annie. Um, I will try to do my best to respond to uh, Quentin's remarks. Thank you so much, Quentin, for uh, guiding the conversation today. Um, and to do so as briefly as I, as I possibly can, though, in my time, Annie and I are former colleagues. She knows that I uh, tend to be somewhat long-winded, so I'll do my best to keep these brief. Um, I have three general points to make. Um, one about the practice of Catholic education and educational research related to Catholic schools in the US. One about theories of Catholic education that can guide our work and two about a call to what we need to do going forward um, as that final point. So first about the practice of Catholic education and educational research. Quentin, at the end of his presentation, raised this question about we have to understand why these patterns are observed, right? He talks about the comparatively good outcomes and showed you all of the quantitative data that we have to show these comparatively good outcomes, but we don't have a way to make sense of why these things are happening at least definitively. We've got some initial research that we can point to, or we've got some outdated research that we can point to that says, okay, here might be why this is happening. You know, something that people point to all the time is Tony Brake's work from 30 years ago uh, in his book with Lee and Holland called Catholic Schools and the Common Good. And it establishes that there are certain organizational structural features happening inside Catholic secondary schools that lead to the uh, comparatively good outcomes, both in terms of academic outcomes and non-academic outcomes. But they only studied Catholic secondary schools and they only really had the evidence through the late 80s and early 90s in order to make these claims. And a study like that, that's methodologically diverse, methodologically rigorous, blending the quantitative with the qualitative research to help us explain how and why these things are happening has not been done systematically uh, and continuously over the course of the past 30 years. And as Quentin points out, the landscape has completely changed in the last 30 years. We're in a very different place. Even though the start of the decline in enrollment had started to happen by the early 90s, 30 years after, we're in a very different world. And so how do we get to a place where we can understand why these things are happening? We have to embrace methodological rigor and methodological diversity. We have to be able to do the kinds of research that Quentin has already mentioned. What do parents want? Do Catholic schools provide it? What is good educational quality? Do Catholic schools provide it? Those are important questions, but the follow-up questions can't be ignored. So we have to be able to go into schools as soon as we're you know, able to do in-person research after the pandemic, interview principals, talk to people, do ethnographic methods, do deep qualitative case studies, figure out not only where the trends are, but what is contributing to the trends. And frankly, to make sense in terms of our methodological diversity and rigor of not only that the trends are happening, but how did the trends get to happen? We might have to do some historical research as well to figure out how the trends got there. So if we're going to understand the organizational entities of Catholic education in this country, we have to embrace methodological diversity and methodological rigor because we're not going to get there if we don't. And that includes not just the quantitative, but also the qualitative, as well as ideological diversity within qualitative and quantitative research. Second point, theories of Catholic education. Uh, Quentin also mentioned that we have an impossible task technically in Catholic schools to do more with less, but I would say that the impossible task that we actually have before us in Catholic education is 
to live up to the values that the church has called us to have in our schools, right? You know, from the Declaration of Christian Education in Gravissimum Education, uh, Educationes in Vatican II forward, all the way through to all of the documents that the Congregation for Catholic Education uh, internationally, as well as the USCCB in this country have put out with Catholic schools. The theory of Catholic education is about human formation and integration. It's a, a, a rigorous model of what that human formation and integration needs to be, given that we are dealing with the dignity of these children in our buildings. And is our practice living up to that theory of human integration formation? We have to ask ourselves whether or not that's the case. And if it is, and if we have the metrics or the evidence to prove it, then we have to make sure how to make it replicable. And the final point that I want to make, which is going forward, what is our call? Our call can't just be to improve our schools. We, especially in light of the most recent encyclical uh, of Pope Francis Fratelli Tutti, have to work in solidarity with our communities. We have to work with our neighbors in other public schools, in charter schools, um, in, in our districts, with private schools in our districts. Because if we truly believe in the fundamental dignity of all children and of all people, and we're doing something right in our schools, we then have an ethical responsibility to share that knowledge with other people as well. So I'll wrap up there with a very brief set of points about the practice and research of education, theories that will get us towards human formation, and finally, this idea of how to build solidarity. Because we can't just at, at that final point, do it ourselves. We have to figure out what works and then share it with others if we truly are committed to the human dignity of the children in our buildings. Um, so I will now turn it over back to Annie and to Tim. Thanks so much, Andrew. And if anybody has any questions, we'll answer questions after Tim speaks. You can put it in the Q&A um, for Quinn, Andrew, Tim, or myself. Um, Tim. Thank you. Andrew, that was impressive. Um, I, I just want to reflect on what you said for a few minutes, but um, I, I think the first thing that, that Quentin, you challenge us is how do we measure success? I think that so many schools want to just rely on test scores and that's not enough. Um, but the, the flip side of that is oftentimes people say, if you can't measure it, then uh, it doesn't really exist. And that's not true either. Like we have to find new and creative ways to measure success and our values, what we're doing. So that's my first point. The first reflection I, I, I thought about when I read through your um, read through your research it was that we really need to to think about how we're measuring success and what we're emphasizing. The second point, um, I picked up the book Cult of Smart by Frederick De Boer because of this presentation, and I read it and I pulled out a quote that I ran in Catholic School Matters that I think is really good to to repeat. It's it's if you show me how you enroll your students or how they enroll and I will predict your outcomes. And and what's really fascinating about that is like that's what people have attacked uh, Catholic schools. They said, well, you can you can cherry pick your students. So of course, you have good results, whether they're values or no discipline problems or academics. But I think that it's good to reflect on that and to say, you know, we're, we're very intentional about who enrolls and why they're enrolling. And um, that means something. And, and so th that formation of community is, is, is very important. I think that, uh, you know, that, that's where my thoughts are um, over the past couple of years have been about community. I think that some of your research, Quentin, really brings up that question of, of why do we exist? Do we exist as an insular community? Do we exist to serve ourselves? And those people who, you know, maybe one way of putting it is to say, are we serving the, the, the parents and families who go to church every Sunday? Or are we serving the community? And I think that points out what you were talking about, Andrew, the solidarity of do we exist to serve? Maybe another way of looking at this, I was, I was just in a conversation yesterday with somebody about this. And, and they said, are, is, are our Catholic schools, are they corporal works of mercy or are they spiritual works of mercy? You know, a spiritual work of mercy is to instruct the ignorant. And of course, many times we, we feel like we're instructing the ignorant, right? Whether they're parents or students, um, not staff, of course, right? Um, but do, do we view what we're doing as like feeding the hungry and burying the dead as a corporal work of mercy that we're of service to the world? Um, I want to say um, I found... One thing a little bit odd, I don't want to say disturbing, I thought it was a little bit odd, was the idea that people who enroll in Catholic schools were less, um, had less affinity towards diversity 
and I think we need to, I think we need to spend a little bit of time thinking about that and what that means. You know, like if that's really true, if people are choosing Catholic schools to get away from diversity, um, that, that frightens me and just, it would be a very discouraging thing if it was true. Um, I think maybe it's the sense of what diversity means to people. I don't know, but I think more research needs to be done there. Um, and I think the other piece, which I, you know, um, I was there uh, for the rollout of the Vatica NCEA report in 2017. And one of the things that I think really torpedoed it was the idea that uh, when people said, looks like people really don't want the faith. So, hey, go with that people. And uh, people are like, yeah, that's, I don't agree with that. Okay. So I, I think maybe what we need to, to talk about is what do we mean by deepening the faith? Like, do we mean doctrine or do we mean practice? And so, you know, like if you say to me, um, are you attracted to the idea of going to a place where people care for each other, where you're known and loved and the dignity of each person is celebrated? I think you're going to get a different response than uh, saying, do you want to go to a place where Catholic, true Orthodox Catholic doctrine is taught and lived every minute, every day by every person? Well, you're going to get less people interested in that right? But maybe more interested in this. So I think there needs to be a little bit more uh, work on, on what that means. So, so those are my four, um, four reflections. I'm so impressed, Quentin, by your work, especially because it's your side gig and your, uh, your hobby, as opposed to your J-O-B. Um, so thank you. Um, and I'll, I'll turn it back to you, Annie, for questions, I guess, huh? Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Quinn, and thank you, Andrew. Um, I believe uh, Michael's going to join us, and he's going to walk us through um, any questions. So again, if you have any questions, you can type them in the Q&A box. Great. Thank you, Annie, and thank you to all our, our fantastic presenters here, panelists. Um, I'm really excited for where the conversation goes. Um, so a first question um, that, Quentin, I'll direct at you um, from Stephanie Stokel. Um, she states, thank you for sharing the data. My secular colleagues would, would say that all the positive differences come from a generally higher level of affluence among families with children at private slash Catholic schools. My experience with religious as opposed to merely private schools, however, is that they are often struggling to make ends meet financially and struggle to pay teachers competitively. What would you say might be the role of money in, in, with regards to your data? Um, something that you know, Tim had also already mentioned as well. Right. I mean, the, the, the results that I showed, um, when you compare, of course, uh, basic statistics, uh, that doesn't control for income. Uh, but uh, when you do the regression analysis, income is typically, with most of the data sets, something that you can control for. Uh, because we do have actually, for example, in the CSS data, information on, on household income. So in principle, um, the issue of income is controlled for, right? Um, and, and typically, once you control for income, um, the, the difference that you see in the basic statistics is, is reduced, but remains there, right? And, and, and for many things, actually not reduced that much. So um, I'm not sure it's income. Uh, it might be something else uh, that we don't control for, right? Uh, the self-selection, the commitment by the parents, or what Tim mentioned, the process of selection of who gets into some of the school versus uh, not getting into the school, right? Um, so, so what I would say is that I, I'm not sure it's money, um, because once we control for money, uh, we still see um, those differences. Now, the, the other point in the question was that, indeed, um, Catholic schools do struggle. Uh, there, there is no doubt about that. Um, and, and this is what I showed that that scatterplot with the market share, uh, where you have a much higher market share for Catholic schools uh, when um, the population of the state um, is, is higher. Um, I mean, the, the, the US is actually an, an amazing outlier in terms of non supporting Catholic or other. Uh, faith-based schools. Most of the other OECD countries actually do support. Uh, my country, for example, Belgium, uh, I went to Catholic schools as a kid, I went to Catholic university, and everything was paid the same way almost by the state as, as the public schools, right? Um, but, but this is why it's such a difficult task. Um, and indeed, um, I mean, when I was saying that Catholic schools need to do more with less, um, they do in many ways, right? Um, and uh, for example, teachers in Catholic schools tend to be paid less than teachers in uh, public schools. And um, it is that dimension of commitment, I think, um, that uh, makes a big difference. Now, I'm not saying, of course, that, that uh, people in, uh, or teachers in, in public schools are not committed. Of course, they are committed, right? But, but there is special something about 
um, the Catholic schools. And, and if I can just say one more word, um, I, I fully agree, by the way, with what uh, Tim and Andrew said. Um, um, I think we need to have those, those detailed case studies. And, and one I did a few years back, uh, this was actually part of my GOB, um, was about uh, Fe Alegria, uh, which is an amazing network of schools in Latin America um, that tries to, to, to reach uh, people who are from disadvantaged backgrounds. And what was fascinating um, was um, how they organized the schools how they have this mentorship relationship between the teachers who have a lot of experience and, and, and new teachers, right? They're coached, which is one of the important things that you need to do. Um, how the management uh, of the school is done in such a way uh, that is both rigorous, but, but also participatory. I mean, there, there are lots of practical dimensions. And, and the last thing I'll say is that uh, when Tim and actually Andrew, you mentioned that too, when, when, when you're mentioning um, the latest encyclical of the Pope, right? Uh, the, the reason why we created, for example, that new website was to do two things, to, to provide information on, on, on how to manage schools well to Catholic schools, but also provide information from Catholic schools about what they do, which is innovative, that can help many other schools, right? And, and, and I think that's as important a mission, and I couldn't agree more that the role that, that we may have is, is beyond the walls of Catholic schools only. I mean, that's a long response, um, but, but I wanted to mention that as well. Thank you, Michael. Great. Um, if there aren't any additional responses from our, our panelists, um, yes, Andrew. I do have one point, Michael, just to add there. So related to the, the poverty effects or the, the effects of happening in schools with uh, relatively affluent populations, um, accepting the premise of the Catholic school advantage or the Catholic school effect coming out of quantitative research for the past several years, um, that even controlling for income, that these good benefits happen, that doesn't necessarily give us an answer to prospectively what these schools might be able to do if access were to be increased, right? So the question still remains, if you find a technical policy-oriented solution to increase access, thinking that these schools provide this benefit, will they continue to if the organizational structures of the schools fundamentally change if you increase access? And so this is where we actually need to know more about what might happen if you expanded access, would these effects still remain or are these effects only there because we have an infrastructure that works with a small percentage of people living in poverty and people who aren't relatively well off in our schools, would it still be there? And so I think methodologically, we have to consider what will change if the composition of the student body across the sector in the US changes as well. Thank you. Um, a question I'm gonna direct to Tim, but of course is open to everyone else. Um, Carol Semino, writes, the Catholic hierarchy and pastors don't seem to favor Catholic schools. How do we change that? And I won't take that premise necessarily entirely true, but Tim, I would wonder how would you, as a, um, as a leader in the industry, um, communicate the value to those who are holding often decision power, um, whether it be pastors or um, bishops? I would hire Carol Semino to come in and consult. Um, Carol's done far more work than I have in this. Um, I think that we, we have to appreciate the fact that so many dioceses are strapped for cash, uh, whether that was part of the sexual abuse crisis, but there's a scarcity mindset. And I, I mean, I saw the, the question come up a couple of different ways about uh, support from the hierarchy. I mean, I, I think that the, the attitude is that there's a lot of people fighting for dollars and attention. And, um, and so, you know, and, and I'm probably not the best person to answer that because my position is being eliminated because of finances. So, um, you know, you, you try to make the case of the value of Catholic schools um, and the attention but the reality is that uh, we're up against some pretty major forces that I think the pandemic has exacerbated. Mm. Uh, maybe I'll open it up to anyone else. Yeah, I think we should also highlight the things that institutions are doing to help, um, like the School Pastors Institute at Notre Dame. So I think getting to the pastors themselves, so they know how they can support schools, not only financially, but spiritually, academically, whatever. Um, I know at NCA, we have regular presentations to bishops so we can showcase what our Catholic schools are doing and how important they are um, to the future of the Catholic church. And then just in general, we need to think of alternative financial models to support our schools so it isn't the parish supporting the school only or the parishioners um, so that they can have long-term sustainable success. 
Um, well, following up on that, that question of support, um, Bill McCready says one of the success, one of the reasons Catholic higher education in the U.S. is successful is the intense support of alums. And there used to be a program at NCEA that um, to help parishes form foundations, to help support schools of, um, in the future. Is that still operating? And perhaps more expansively, what are some other avenues um, we might take um, to sort of expand support for schools? Yeah, that's a great question. All I know of is that we support annual campaigns. We do things like the Day of Giving, um, which we had on December 1st, and then we'll have another one through Catholic Schools Week, where we support schools as they raise funds. Um, I think we had over like 300 schools across the nation um, participate in the Day of Giving um, and things like that. But we don't necessarily have that foundation support, but we're open to ideas. Quentin, yeah. I mean, this is just a piece of data, but, but um, I mean, one of the organizations that um, is helping us with the new website that we created is called OMAEC, uh, and that's the uh, global Catholic organization that federates alumni organizations, right? And so we are trying to compute uh, for them, uh, how many alumni do we have in the world, right? Um, and uh, so I came up with a number, I mean, I still have to, to finalize it, uh, which is over the order of 350 million alumni, uh, for Catholic education for K-12. But what is interesting, right, and, and it's obvious, uh, is that the ratio of alumni to student currently, right, is of course much higher in the US than anywhere else. And, and the reason is because of the decline, right, in, in, in the number of, uh, of, of students. And um, I mean, I think that this is um, a, a huge potential resources. Um, it's, it's a huge potential resources financially, um, but it's also huge potential resources in, in many other ways, right? For example, uh, for after-school tutoring programs uh, for the students who may have difficulties. And so I think we need to do a better job at um, distilling best practices uh, in terms of how to engage the alumni. Um, but, but here, because of the decline over the last 50 years, uh, there might be more potentially a success in the US of, of engaging them just because we have so many of them per child uh, in the schools currently. And Michael, I just wanted to mention Fatica too. Um, they're the foundations and donors interested in Catholic activities, which has um, philanthropists across the country and they do a lot to support our Catholic schools um, and research. And then I think Andrew had something to add. Yeah, I, I don't want to discount the importance of finances because it's, you know, it's essential to the broad operations, but I do want to put a plug in for the general community organizing that we have to do in our Catholic schools, right? We have to get people engaged. So whether you're an alumnus or not of a school, particularly with our elementary schools, if these places are truly Catholic schools and they should be embedded parts of communities, right? Outside of the four walls of the school itself. And so if you realize that there's a Catholic school in your area that might be struggling, an elementary school or uh, even, even a high school, uh, go find out ways to work, you know, go volunteer, build that community, be a part of it, because that's we can't run these institutions without community, not only because of the resources that we need and the human capital that we need, but because of the ethic of what the place is. The place can't be truly a Catholic school if it's not a community school, if it's not serving a broader public, a broader common good. And so be involved, find ways to be involved. And I'm sure that your principals and teachers in that local Catholic school would be eager to have you help um, at any way you can. Um, Andrew, I'm going to keep you in the hot seat. Uh, a question from Robert Redman, and of course, this will open up to the whole panel after. Um, but how important do you feel that it is to continue to develop faculty and staff regarding faith and what our institutions bring to the table? I often feel we all need to hear this information more often. Thank you for your work. Uh, it, it's essential. Um, I, you know, I work in a school of education. I am the academic advisor for a Catholic leadership cohort that's coming through our Masters of Ed Leadership program. Uh, people dedicated to the work of Catholic education um, uh, and that want to give continuing years of service, whether they be teacher leaders, and we want to figure out a way to provide them with professional development. And universities, Catholic universities throughout the country, the Chess group that Quentin mentioned, are doing a, a great job in their region and then nationally to do this work. But we have to, at the same time that we're professionalizing teaching, continuing to enhance the professionalization of teaching and leadership in Catholic education, 
we researchers and we education scholars and other people at universities have to simultaneously be doing the prep work, doing the professionalizing, meeting teachers and leaders where they are and improving their skill set, but also questioning whether or not we got the right frameworks to do so. Are we sufficient? Are we just trying to make them good teachers? Or are we figuring out what it means to be a good Catholic teacher, what it means to be a good Catholic leader? So we've got a lot of work that whether or not we've shirked the responsibility previously, and I myself, I know have, and so I'm trying to get back involved in it, uh, we have to make sure that we're doing both the constant prep of professionalizing, getting make, you know, degree programs, certificate programs, being innovative, while also pushing new frameworks to figure out whether or not what we've got now is sufficient. Um, so it's a big task, but it's, it's got to be the core for those of us at schools of education of what we do. And it's what our community within the Chesks network talks about all the time. Great. Anyone else on that point? Quentin? Sorry, unmuting me. Um, uh, I also want to, to, to mention one thing, um, which is that um, academics um, in the US, I think uh, in, in Catholic universities or elsewhere, have actually a responsibility to help uh, low-income countries, right? Uh, I, I did mention that even though uh, Catholic schools represent 3% uh, of total enrollment in Catholic education, um, so those in the US, right, of global enrollment, for universities, it's one fourth, right? And so the, the, there is um, a, a level of resources here at the university level, which is incredible. Uh, and we need to find ways also to harness that uh, to help um, say Catholic schools networks in Africa, right? Uh, or in India, uh, and, and that is not happening. And, and, and so one of the dreams would be uh, to be able to put teams like that together, uh, that they can actually also help uh, in those low income countries where, uh, I mean, help could really make a difference. Um, so I, there, there have been a few questions raised, um, Quentin, regarding the point that you made regarding diversity and the value of diversity within schools. And Andrew, I know that you also sort of um, chimed in on around that. Could Quentin, could you unpack that again? And maybe Andrew or Tim or Annie, you could also talk about other ways in which schools can respond to the problem that Quentin's identifying. Right, so, so what I can do is make a bit more precise how the questions were asked in the survey and what those numbers mean, right? And then Tim and Andrew and others who are actually working on the ground with Catholic schools often can perhaps uh, give, give their perspective. So the way uh, those questions were asked in the, in the FADICA and CEA survey was uh, parents um, were asked, uh, what is the priority for your children to learn in schools, right? Um, and they had nine options. And five of these options were related to skills, broadly speaking, and four were related to values and faith, right? One of the options uh, related to values was uh, the importance of, of uh, diversity. Um, and it does come out from the data uh, that uh, the parents of uh, children who are in Catholic schools uh, put less of an emphasis on the value of diversity uh, as a value to be learned in school than other aspects, right? Um, so, and, and, and this is a bit concerning, and I agree with Tim uh, when I saw those data, I said, ha ha. Um, now, that doesn't mean that the parents do not value diversity. Right? Uh, same, when, 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 for example, uh, people say, well, faith is not what I want my child to learn in priority in school because I have other priorities for what the child should learn in school. That doesn't mean that the parents don't think that faith is important. They might just think, okay, faith, there's a church for that. They can learn it at church and not in school, right? So, so we, we have to take all of this with a grain of salt. Um, but there was a concern uh, that um, the parents with children in Catholic schools did not put as high uh, the ideal of, of learning about diversity in school as the some of the eight other dimensions uh, that were proposed uh, in terms of what they could choose. They had to choose three of the nine. Great. Um, any responses from Andrew or Tim or any? Okay, um, so moving along, um, I, I, so two related questions that I'll squeeze together. Um, uh, Eileen Emerson Bolas, uh, says, speaking from my own, oh, sorry, we'll get to that question next. Michael Edgehill says, any comments on the correlative decline in religion slash spirituality among adults and decline in school enrollments, i.e. choosing these schools for their children, especially with the general decline among adults um, continuing slash growing? And is there a way to compare this um, with what we might see within Europe? So a question around secularism, and then I'll have a follow-up question after that. Um, Quentin. 
maybe I can give a first cut at that and, and the others can, can complement. Um, so multiple factors may have led to the decline in, in the US, right? Um, I mean, I, I do believe that the most important factor uh, has been the fact that as um, the manpower, if you will, um, of the Catholic schools became more and more uh, lay people. Um, uh, so the cost advantage that the schools had before uh, in terms of relying on religious people, for example, uh, went down and then the cost barrier uh, went up, right? So I do believe that it's, it's still mostly an issue of cost, although um, the other types of religious schools in the US did not have the same decline as the Catholic schools, right? And uh, there may be something that relates to uh, secularization. Uh, there may be also some things that relate to um, the uh, church uh, scandal um, about um, sexual abuse uh, because there was a larger decline in some of the areas that were more affected. So it's very difficult to disentangle. Um, but it is clear, for example, that in Europe, uh, I know my own country, uh, Belgium or France, and there are a few others, you do not have a decline uh, or not a large decline in enrollment uh, in Catholic schools. You have a bit of a decline, but, but not, not severe in any way, because the schools are again perceived as providing uh, a high quality education comparatively and as uh, indeed emphasizing values. But, but there the debate is, are the schools actually Catholic between quotes, right? Um, because they are actually, uh, publicly funded, uh, even in Africa, most of the Catholic schools are actually publicly funded, right? And they are considered public schools. So what is a Catholic school is always a bit of a complicated answers to complicated question. But the bottom line is that I mean, secularization probably has an impact, uh, but I think that the, the, the cost impact um, is, is probably the largest factors, uh, but there, there are ways of, of, of dealing with it. And I don't want to spend too much time in answering that. Uh, but as Annie said, uh, and as the FADICA survey says, there, there's some, some avenues that we could follow to try to, to help on that. Yeah, I'd like to jump in on that. Um, and I'm gonna go back to what Andrew said, his first thing about how we need more methodological research. I mean, you look at places like Milwaukee where there's vouchers and people have choice between public and Catholic and charter, how are they choosing, right? So there's, a, there's an environment where tuition doesn't come in. We have schools on, on the Indian reservations that are free and they're not full, okay? Why? You know, what, what, so let's take tuition out and let's, let's, let's take a look at if, and, and, and sometimes I ask that question of, of schools, I say, here's a thought question for you. If your school was free, would it be full? And mm -hmm. why not, right? And sometimes people are scared to ask that question because they can, they can rely on mediocrity and say, well, you know, we can't afford to pay teachers. We can't raise tuition. And, you know, the reason we're not full is because we can't afford, people can't afford. They get muddled up in there. And the reality is that sometimes what they're, what they're selling isn't very attractive. So, I, you know, and, and, and I feel like in a lot of ways, we're just, we're just spitballing here. We don't really know. And I think what Andrew called for, I mean, I, I support that. I mean, Tony Brick's book was, was phenomenal, but it was 30 years ago. And it's like, who's, who's doing that now? So there's my thoughts. Great. And this is a sort of related question about demographics. Of course, we've seen um, the, uh, the, the significant share of, um, of Catholics in the US today are coming from Hispanic or Latino backgrounds. So Sol Roblado asks, from a policy and practical perspective, how can we increase the enrollment of Latino or Hispanic families in Catholic schools, which enrollment percentage is far from representative of their growing trend within the church in the US? Um, a really question open to anyone here. I'll say Andrew. one thing about it. Uh, and it's, it's a question of how we frame this question, right? And I, and I know that that is kind of a, an academics dodge, but it is, as I see it, this issue in front of us, which is, are we talking about Latino enrollment because we want to save our schools and keep our doors open? Or are we talking about Latino enrollment because we fundamentally believe in the inclusion of a new population that has not felt welcome in our schools? Um, and for whatever reason, and then we have to do more research to figure out why that is that they have not felt welcome in our schools. But I think that it's the latter to me is more compelling than the former, because yes, we know that, you know, Latino populations tend to be Catholic. And so we could, you know, find them a space in our Catholic schools. But if we don't find ways to make our schools actually inclusive and welcoming of Latino populations, there's nothing that the schools have now that will draw families in if the schools aren't 
willing to actually do that work. And um, Annie and I had a colleague when we worked at the Archdiocese of Boston, Sister Barbara Gutierrez, who this was this was her mantra all the time. Um, and I think that that it, it has always stuck with me how she walked with the communities, um, the the Latino communities in Boston is what you have to do to actually change the organizational structure of the school. And so that's a better way to, to frame the question. It's not about access necessarily. It's not about numbers necessarily. Those are related. Those are lagging indicators. We've got to figure out what's going on organizationally um, to make sure that these are places where welcome is there. Yeah, I think that's really well said, Andrew. And I think not only how can we be culturally welcoming, but culturally sustaining. Once you enroll those students, how are you on the day-to-day practice ensuring that everyone feels welcome in the school and their culture is represented on the day-to-day life? Um, so we're reaching the top of the hour. So I'm just going to ask one final question um, that seems to be coming out of a lot of questions, which is to end on a positive note. Um, where are there models of Catholic schools or of diocesan engagement um, that each of you might point towards? There is there a particular um, model of Catholic education that you think audience members more broadly should know about, or dioceses that are really succeeding, um, how, or even just a book? or, or a, a blog recommendation that you would recommend for, um, for going further with this. Um, and Quentin, we'll start with you. Well, I mean, um, I work on, on global development, right? Not on Catholic schools in the US, but um, one thing that I found very interesting when I was uh, discussing with a few Jesuits uh, is the Crystal Ray Network, um, uh, which has this very interesting model uh, whereby uh, the students in the secondary schools uh, or the high schools, uh, to take the name of the U.S., uh, actually also work, um, and 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 they have tremendous success in reaching disadvantaged groups and and uh, having them continue. Right? I mean, um, so if there can be more innovations like that, different types of schools uh, for different populations uh, that may have different uh, needs, uh, that that's part of the answer. Great, um, Tim. Yeah, if you take Crystal Ray, I, I think the second one would be the partnership model in New York City that spread to Cleveland. It's a management model. And so it gets schools away from the sort of subsidiarity of site management of everything. I mean, I think a lot of these questions are all centering around this idea of how do we help schools from operating on their own? And so it's a, it's a management model where there's not, I think, I believe, seven schools in New York City and two in um, Cleveland where they have sort of their own superintendent and they just sort of, they don't own the building, but they run it. And so that's where I think the future is in terms of management instead of ownership and canon law kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's sort of becoming agile like charters. Great, um, Annie? Yeah, I think it's important to think about what, what can the school do best and what can the central office do best and how can the central offices of each diocese support schools. So just a few, Sacramento, they worked on building up each school board. So having training for the school board. So the school boards are at each school and are actually informed um, on how to improve the school. In Galveston, Houston, um, they centralized their finances so that the finances across each school are the same instead of, um, you know, maybe uh, an older person in the parish office helping out with the finances. And this is how they've always done it with paper invoices. Um, in New York, they have enrollment directors by region to help schools so they can make sure they're doing well. And then in Boston, they had um, a marketing and um, Facebook ad campaign to, to, for all schools instead of just one. So instead of you know being competitive, we work together um, to improve Catholic education. Andrew? So I'll use this line, which comes out of public education research, which is, you know, every year that a satisfaction study in public schools is done, what do you think of public schools in the US? Oh, they're terrible. What do you think of your public school? It's great. It's wonderful. I love it. And so what we have to remember is that there's great stuff happening at the local level. We just have to find it and appreciate it. And so for that reason, I'll put in two local plugs, a school that I had been on the board on, a school that I'm currently on the board of. Uh, uh, so the school I was on the board of previously, uh, Our Lady of Perpetual Help Mission Grammar School serves mostly students of color and almost exclusively low-income students in Roxbury, Massachusetts. Wonderful school and by sheer force of will is making 
making great strides. Um, and it's, you know, based off of a semi-traditional parish-based model, but it's still figuring out a way to make it work um, and is doing excellent things at that school. And the school that I'm currently on the board of, uh, St. Colum Kill Partnership School, um, that's a school in Brighton, Massachusetts, um, partnership with the University of Boston College and the Archdiocese to make this formerly parish school thrive uh, again through sheer force of will and a lot of innovation. But both of these schools are examples of when something's not going right, if you have enough dedicated people at the local level, if you've done the organizing, you can make things happen. And yes, it takes money and yes, it takes people. But you, if you don't have the capital for a network, if you don't have the freedom of policy within your archdiocese or your locality for some new innovation, there is good that can happen at the local level. Well, fantastic. I think with that, we've come to the end of the hour. So I'd like to um, invite all of our audience members to join me, however you may, in thanking our panelists here. Um, and thank you as well for joining us. Um, you can register today for the next installment of this series taking place on February 16th. They'll be looking at global Catholic education. Um, and we'll post a link for that again within the chat. Um, join our mailing list today to stay tuned for future programs that set economics and Catholic social thought into dialogue. Uh, we're already in the midst of planning our spring event that will be on the future of labor. Um, I'm grateful for the organizers and co-sponsors who helped ensure today's success, the Catholic Research Economist Discussion Organization, or Credo, the Global Catholic Education, um, Quentin's website, and please check it out. I posted the link as well in the chat. Global Researchers Advancing Catholic Education, or GRACE, the International Federation of Catholic Universities, the National Catholic Education Association, or NCEA, the International Office of Catholic Education, America Media, and the Roche Center for Catholic Education. Um, thank you all for joining us, and I hope that you will tune in on February 16th. Have a wonderful rest of your day.